Let's go, girls. From New York City to Los Angeles, Powered Up with Beck and Franklin is giving women of all ages permission to live the life they've always dreamed of. Why live in black and white when you can choose the brilliance of 3D and Technicolor? Each week, Sandra Beck and Linda Franklin and their high-powered guests will be here to cheer you on, to share their challenges, their successes, and what they've learned along the way. It's all about women supporting women. The stories and practical tips on sex, beauty, money, and so much more are designed to help you reconnect to the powerful woman you are. Fabulous knows no limits. Now it's time for you to expand your boundaries. Here are Sandra Beck and Linda Franklin. Hey, ladies, this is Sandra Beck, and I'm here with Linda Franklin, and we're visiting today with Barry Eaton. Now, Barry Eaton has been on our show before, and he's a well-known radio and TV presenter. He's an author and a journalist, and he is also, get this, an astrologer, a medium, a psychic intuitive, and he just has so much information to share with us, and a new book coming out called The Joy of Living, Postponing the Afterlife. Boy, Linda. And I don't know anyone out there who who uh, doesn't want to postpone the afterlife. <laughs> well, I could probably think of a few, but I think being in the human body isn't such a bad thing. No, no, it's not a bad thing. But when the human body doesn't cooperate, then it can really take the fun out of things. Uh, Barry, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you, Sandra. How are you? Hi, Linda. Hi. So we're coming today from New York, Los Angeles, and are you in Sydney today, uh, Barry? Where no, are you? no, no. I'm I'm up in the northern be- uh, northern rivers area of New South Wales, up near Byron Bay, which is a well-known sort of international tourist attraction, shall we say? Very spiritual well, area. Very spiritual area, mostly because you're there. But but let's talk <laughs> about <laughs> shameless flirting. Let's talk about the joy of living. Your new book. Yeah, sure. Uh, well, it's about to come out in the States in a few weeks' time. It's um, hopefully around about the beginning of July, I believe. But uh, it was released here a couple of weeks ago in Australia. And, uh, well, it basically tells the story of what happened to me in 2013 when I discovered through accident that I actually had a throat cancer and had to go and deal with it. So that's the, the, the premise of the whole thing. But it's how I managed to deal with it and my partner, Anne, uh, came along for the ride, and she's written, co-written it with me. So it's basically learning how to take things like this in your stride, working with it holistically, mind, body, and spirit, as well as mainstream. And that's what I wanted to try and encourage people to take some responsibility for themselves. Don't just sit back and say, poor me here, doctor, doctor, look after me. It's all up to you now. You've got to get in there, and you've got to do some some uh, part of the healing process yourself. That's the whole premise of the book. I couldn't agree more with that, Barry. Um, and, you know, I've been very lucky with my health, but um, I take nothing for granted with the doctors. And I always go with a list of questions. And, you know, I'll, sometimes they get annoyed at me uh, because uh, I want to know too much. But I think it's better that way than just leaving everything to them because they're not perfect and you have to be your own advocate. 
Well, that's right. And uh, every doctor has an area that they want to sort of push you into. And, of course, these days, no matter what happens, and I believe uh, in the States now, the FDA has turned around and said to doctors, unless you diagnose somebody with cancer and send them straight on to either chemo or radiotherapy, you run the risk of being struck off. Now, wow, that's that's a bit hairy. Well, that's, I hadn't heard that, but, you know, if that's if that's so, it, that's a very scary thing. Um, and, of course, I mean, the first thing that you have to do when you get diagnosed is always get another couple of opinions just to make sure, we, you know, that what you heard is correct, right? Yeah, well, I was choking to death uh, quietly, or not noisily, actually, um, with this uh, blockage in my throat. So oh. I really didn't have to get too many more opinions because I knew there was a tumor there. I'd been trying to clear my throat for a while, and uh, I thought there was just something stuck there. Yeah, it was. It was stuck there, all right. It was a tumor. So we had to go and get that out. But then, of course, you only get the, the surface part out. Then you've got to go deeper and, and get out all the remaining cells. Otherwise, you've only got to have one rogue cell, and it metastasizes, and off you go on the, down the downhill run. Was there any danger that they would have to uh, take out your voice box? God, don't even think about that, Linda. No. No, no, the reason I'm saying that is we had a friend and I mean, he was, you know, he had a lot of medical issues. He had the cystic fibrosis from from birth, uh, but he did develop uh, a cancer in his throat. And I mean, I, I just, every time I, he's, he's now passed away from, from the cystic, but, and I think maybe the cancer is what did it because he, he, developed it and the doctor went in and what they did is they I I if it's the larynx is the, the voice box I'm not sure I'm not a doctor but they they cut it out so after they did they he couldn't talk he really couldn't eat and and it was just and then he had to do chemo and imagine doing chemo when your your body is already depleted from the cystic fibrosis it was I mean I my heart went out to him it was just a horrible thing so I'm so glad that, you know, that, that wasn't your issue because it, that was a nightmare. Yes, yeah, sounds like it. Sounds like a series of nightmares. No, mine was uh, at the base of the tongue, the lingual tonsil, they call it, mm -hmm. and that was where the uh, the tumour was. But then when I went in there, they also found out that I had um, cancer in the thyroid, so I had a double whammy. Wow. Uh, found it on the left side, so they, after I had my tumour out, then they said, oh, we've got to go and get the left side of your thyroid out as well just in case that's got cancer so they took that out then they said oh well that's cancerous so we better take the other side out now now my intuition told me no the right side is uh, benign it's, it's no problem with it but of course they don't take intuition into account in medical areas and they really did some heavy talking and said no 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 if you have to go in because you're going to have to have radiotherapy and if you start doing this then the other side of the thyroid comes out oh serious problems serious problems so i allowed myself to be talked into having the right side of my thyroid out and it turned out to be absolutely benign when it came out so now i'm thyroidless and um I, I could have had half a thyroid, which is certainly better than none at all, let me tell you. Um, but this is where intuition comes in. And, and do you trust yourself? This was a hard hard uh, road to go down at the time. It's a very, very hard road. And so many people are, are faced with that every day when they get a diagnosis. And, and they just don't know which way to go because, you know, they, they, there's just, there's, there, well, thankfully, there are choices. 
but you know some of the choices aren't what you know what that you'd really want to do and um i like what you ultimately did because i i read your story um is eastern west eastern medicine and western medicine the combination of both i think is 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 the answer Oh, look, definitely, Sandra, and it's not even a whole lot of Eastern medicine that I did. I, I went in there knowing the fact that I had to do something because I started to do a long series of meditations, tuning in. Uh, once I realized that my intuition was uh, was going well and the, uh, the whole thyroid issue was a, a real test on that one, I went in, did a lot of meditation, and I was given tremendous help. I asked the universe for help, and I got it. From simple things like I had to go and have some radiotherapy, so I was able to find the best place to stay because it's the hospital I was going to was two hours drive north of where I live. And the universe provided that for me, a fantastic place to live. And that was just the beginning. All of the other things that I needed to do all fell into place because I asked for it. And I, I've got that philosophy. You don't ask, you don't get. And we've all got spirit guides, we've all got helpers, we've all got angels around us all the time. And if we ask for help and then trust in that help, it will inevitably arrive in some form or another, even if it's only inspiration. And that certainly happened with me. And that was just the beginning of a whole series of events that led to me to be able to handle it and take the fear out of the whole issue. That's the biggest thing, because as soon as you hear that word, cancer you oh, have cancer God. i mean doctors don't say that sort of thing. you have cancer barry but it's not quite <laughs> that bad but you know as soon as you get that diagnosis um well a whole lot of four-letter words flock across the mind yes, yes and fear is the first thing oh my god i never thought i was going to die and i thought if i do die well what the hell i've written about the afterlife i know it's all pretty good over there so not to worry but I really intuitively knew that I wasn't going to die. And then with a whole series of um, things that happened to me, I realized that this was something that I had to undergo. And I was told in no uncertain terms by spirit that I had to write about it. All right. We'll be back with more Barry Eaton after the break. We've got lots more Powered Up with Sandra Beck and Linda Franklin after these messages. In today's business world, a helping hand or idea that doesn't come with an invoice is a treasured find. And if that happens to you, then you need to pay it forward to keep other entrepreneurs from making mistakes or getting a raw deal. It's called Paying It Forward with Josephine Girasi. Wednesday mornings at 10, 9 a.m. Central, Josephine is going to have the guests describe their accomplishments, the lessons they've learned, both good and bad, and then sharing those pieces of knowledge as we create a movement of Paying It Forward. For more information about Josephine, her business, and background, you can go to MyMomKnowsBest.com. Josephine Jirasi has always been a problem solver. She saw this need and has turned it into a movement. It's Paying It Forward with tips, tools, and advice and hard lessons learned. These pieces of knowledge can make a huge difference for you, your business, and others. So join us for Paying It Forward 
with Josephine Jurassic, Wednesday mornings at 10 a.m., 9 a.m. Central on Toginet.com. Gifts make gladden girls, but they seem to burden guys. That's what a recent study by Live Science says. Women respond with happy gratitude when they receive a present. But when a man unwraps a gift, he immediately feels a sense of obligation to the giver. Even those women who really don't like getting presents are pretty good at faking a smile. What do you call a person who fakes a smile? An exodesiast. According to psychologists, men tend to keep mental notes of what they got from whom and check it against their own generosity. Women, on the other hand, take gift-giving much less seriously. I guess ever since Eve gave Adam the apple, there has been trouble between sexes about gifts. Have you ever unwrapped a G-Food Jet? That's another name for any gift you'd just rather put in the garbage. It's Marching Day. I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words-you-never-heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. We're back with Sandra Beck and Linda Franklin. Here's more Powered Up with Beck and Franklin. Hey, ladies, this is Sandra Beck, and we're here today with Barry Eaton, and we're talking about cancer. We're talking about combining holistic and mainstream therapies from a very spiritual standpoint in the cancer battle. Now, one of the things that I found, I come from a cancer family. I I also had my thyroid removed, Barry, but it was many years ago, and my, my tumor was encapsulated, thankfully, and I'm still here, obviously, um, yes. but was the management of fear. And I can remember as a little 13-year-old girl, you know, kind of bargaining with God and saying, you know, if you let me live, if it's not spreading, if it's all these things, um, I will do this. I will do that. I will do these promises. And the fear... I think was was worse than anything. And the management of the fear was, I think, one of the critical keys to to treatment. And I say that for my mom, who's passed on from breast cancer, and my dad and my brother, who've all had cancer. Um, fear is the killer. I mean, that's, that's the hardest thing to manage on a day-to-day basis. The treatments are awful. Yes, you get sick. Radiation is painful. But that fear creeps up at you in the middle of the night when you're going to the bathroom. You know, the darndest places it shows up. Yeah, look, that's so true. And it's, it's, I guess, part of our conditioning, isn't it, to fear the unknown. But I've worked with an acronym on fear for many years. If you take the F-E-A-R and have it as false evidence appearing real. And how many of our fears turn out to be false or overrated or whatever? In the long run, we're able to deal with our fears. So I start at that base. And I was able to work on my fears by becoming positive about the whole thing, Sandra, and taking part in it, not just sitting by. I think too many people just, as I said before, sit back and allow everything to happen, allow the medical system. Oh, you've got to have chemotherapy. Oh, you've got to have that. Well, I knew from the word go that I wasn't going to have chemotherapy. My intuition told me you are not having chemotherapy. And I told the doctors. 
And I said to them, uh, sorry, chemo's off the table. I'll consider radiotherapy because, as I said before, I'm holistic. I go into all sorts of alternative remedies on anything. And even going down the uh, radiotherapy area was going to be a huge stretch for me because my whole family thought, uh-oh, there's no way Barry's going to do this. He's going to end up just another statistic. Uh, but then I got such strong advice from the other side. Yeah, we want you to do that. We want you to have the radiotherapy. And I had to come to terms with that one and conquer the fear of not only the cancer, but the fear that I'd built up over the years of things like chemo and radiotherapy. So there are a lot of fears, but once again, that acronym, false evidence appearing real. And when you start to think about it, what are the things we were afraid of or fearing this time last year? A year, two years, three years ago. You can't even remember because we've gotten over them. We've been able to deal with them in many different ways. But because cancer is such a scary beast, we allow that fear to take over in some kind of great big black uh, fog that surrounds us. And that is one of the first things we have to do. And that is one of the prime reasons I really wanted to write this book, to help people with their fear. So what do you do, Barry? You go into your doctor and you say, he gives you the diagnosis and you've, you've, had, you've done your, your surgery. And they say, well, you know, now you've got to do chemo. And you're saying to the doctor, under no way am I going to, you know, do chemo. Um, and I'm going, you know, I'm willing to do this. And I've got some alternative therapies that I want to do because that's what I believe in. And I know that they'll help me. And the doctor said, I, I don't think so. I, you know, your best bet for hanging in there is, is chemo. How do you, how do you get the doctors to be on board? Or well, I think this, this will vary, of course, with each doctor that you're, you're dealing with. Some are more open-minded than others. But with, in my case, I was told from the word go that I'll oh, probably radiotherapy or chemo. And I said to the doctor straight out, well, I'm not up for chemo. Chemo is off the table. And that was the ear, nose and throat specialist. Then I had to go to this hospital in Brisbane, the Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital, where they have this amazing uh, machine, I'll tell you about it later, called Tomo. And I found out that that was going to um, be the answer that, that clicked me over into accepting radiotherapy. But I went in there not saying, oh, yes, I'm smarter than you. I've got all these alternative therapies and everything like that. I just sort of played along, but I reserved the right because I thought, okay, mate, it's my neck literally in this case, it's my neck. I am going to make the decision what I'm going to have. And once we do that, we take responsibility for ourselves. I didn't go in there sort of espousing the cause of, of alternative therapies or anything like that. I just sort of played along and I thought I will make the decision in my own time. And if I decide to say no, no radiotherapy, no chemo, no nothing. I'm going to go off and sit in a cave in the top of a mountain and meditate and eat raw vegetables or something, which is what my family thought I was going to do. Um, then that is my choice in life, surely. It is my choice. And so I didn't say anything to them. I just played along. And then I went along to this committee meeting, which they have once a week at the Royal Brisbane Hospital for the head and neck committee, they call it. And you meet a whole lot of oncologists, psychologists, dieticians, whole lot of people, and they come in and talk to you one by one, and then they go away and they make their assessment and they make their recommendations. Well, when the lady came in who was the oncologist who specialized in chemotherapy, and I said to her, sorry, 
chemo's off the table for me. I'm just not going, oh, yes, but but I'm, I'm an expert and I can do this. And I, can. I said, no, sorry, chemo's off the table, not having it. Well, she, she took it personally, I think, because she sort of harumphed a lot and stuck her nose in the air and, and left in high dudgeon. And I was left sitting in there in low dudgeon. And um, that was it. I never heard another word about chemo. Nobody came back to me with the results of the committee saying, yes, you've got to have chemo. They respected my decision on that when I told them all, no chemo. I will look at radiotherapy, but I am not under any circumstances having chemo. That was my decision. And I think that's where we go with this, Linda. It's our personal choice. And it's, you know, it's our body. It's our life. And we have to have some say in it. Otherwise, you're giving all your power away. Um, what about um, family members? What if family members give you some pressure? Uh, you know, because, if they, you know, they usually give you odds, don't they? You know, if you do the chemo, your your odds are, are much better than if you do the radiation or other things. Um, were the family all on board with the decision that you made? Well, they were eventually, because as I said at the beginning, they thought I was going to go off and live in a cave for a while and, and probably be carted back feet first. But that... Uh, being said, my first wife was uh, remarried to a, a, a thoracic physician, and David and I had some long talks about all of this, and he explained it rationally. He accepted the fact of my beliefs and everything like that, and he, he gave me some really good f things to think about, and he, he accepted the fact that I wasn't going to have chemo, but they were all prepared to respect my decision one way or the other. So there was no heavy talking or anything like that, probably because they knew that whatever I was going to do, I was going to do it anyway, being a strong-minded sort of a person. And I think that obviously changes under everybody's circumstances because everybody's unique. We've discussed this before. In returning to the afterlife, we all have unique journeys. But... I think we have to make sure that we know what we want. I have just a one other question because I think about this all the time. So in, in order to make your decision, you said you, you went into deep meditation and you got, you got messages and you got help um, from all of your guides. And, and how do you decipher what is coming through as a message from beyond or sometimes it's your own head talk? Yeah, that's a good question. I guess in my terms, uh, because I do, I, I work also as a psychic and a medium, I've learned to trust because my first two books, Afterlife and No Goodbyes, were done very much in concert with my spiritual advisors. And I knew once I got in touch with these people and they were, they were um, there for me, and I knew that the quality of the information, and I've got various ways of, of proving that. Now, obviously, this will not apply to many, many people, but we still all have intuition. We still all have our strong beliefs, our internal knowledge, and even if we have to go away and, and see, there are medical mediums around. There are people like this. I'm... I'm got a book somewhere here called Medical Medium. It's a wonderful book. It's written by an American. I can't remember his name now. Um, but there are people like this um, that help you out to find out for yourself to help you understand what the situation is. But once again, it still has to boil down to you, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. 
What do you think if if you could sum it up in one like you know like one piece of advice for somebody who's gotten a recent diagnosis in the management of all this Barry would you say like what advice would you give them Wow that's a big one what advice would I give them well for a start letting go of the fear knowing the fact that there are things that you can do now, I was lucky I got into the early stages of my cancer, and I know this doesn't always apply. People sometimes find out at very late stages. But there are things that you can do. I mean, for instance, there's um, a guy called Ty Bollinger around. I don't know whether you've heard of Ty. Uh, and they, they do the whole story of the, the truth about cancer. And um, people can Google Ty, T-Y-B-O-L-L-I-N-G-E-R. And they have done a whole series of um, videos or DVDs and telling people that we do have alternatives. Now, those alternatives may or may not be right for you. You may not want to even go down that track. But once again, you have to retain your power in all of this. Now, this is a program called Powered Up, and I do believe that we all have a, our power, but the, it can't be taken away from us. We can only give it away. And that's what we do under these circumstances. When we don't take responsibility for ourselves and play some part, I mean, I had to work out what contribution did I make to this cancer? It wasn't just something that somebody walked past me and, and squirted me and I was covered in cancer. No, 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 no. I had to play some part in it. So I have to take some kind of responsibility for it. We'll be back after the break. got lots more powered up with Sandra Beck and Linda Franklin after these messages. This is for all you girls about 42. Tossing pennies into the fountain of youth. Every- Have you heard? The pages of American Patchwork and Quilting magazine come to life on our new weekly online radio show, American Patchwork and Quilting. Join Pat Sloan, our blogging and quilt designer host, as she talks about the latest trends, ideas, and inspirations. Her guests include quilt pattern designers, authors, quilt shop owners, and our editors. All quilters, just like you. Call in with your questions. Get quilting tips from industry experts. Learn about free patterns. Hear behind-the-scenes stories from our magazines, American Patchwork and Quilting, Quilt Sampler, and Quilts and More. Get the scoop on free stuff and find out more about the best independent quilt shops in North America. To listen to a live show, tune in Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern. Just log on to allpeoplequilt.com radio. To hear past shows, go to iTunes and search for American Patchwork and Quilting Radio. We hope you'll join us because we know that quilting changes everything. We have a book titled The Art of Doing Nothing by Veronica Vienne in our guest room by the bed. I'm telling you, this book is an impossible challenge. In the state of Maine, it's said that someone who bottoms chairs for a living is lazy, presumably because one's bottom is perpetually in the chair. To sozzle means to laze around or perform a task in a sloppy way. The word is mainly found in New England. A quote from 1848 describes the term as used by housekeepers in certain parts of Connecticut to refer to a lazy person. 
Other words for lazy people are abbey lovers, scabberlatchers, and slaughter pooches. To me, the ultimate loblolly is someone who is too lazy to even fake like they're working. It's marching I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words-you-never-heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. We're back with Sandra Beck and Linda Franklin. Here's some more Powered Up with Beck and Franklin. This is for all you girls. Hey, ladies, this is Sandra Beck, and I'm here with Linda Franklin and Barry Eaton, the author of a new book called The Joy of Living, Combining Holistic and Mainstream Therapies. Now, we're going to talk a little bit about these holistic therapies. And, you know, for my mother and my father and my brother and myself, uh, we all combined different holistic therapies. um, treatments along with mainstream therapies. I had had um, chemical treatment and then I also had uh, surgery. Um, but And this was many, many years ago, Barry, and I was be- being treated by a doctor. I can't remember his name anymore, but he was from the Mayo Clinic. And we used to do these meditations in the morning. We didn't call it at that point, but I was to sit for 15 minutes every morning and imagine spaceships like space invaders shooting um, shooting like rockets and shooting, zapping the tumor. And at the time, I thought it was a game and I would do it with the nurses and they would come in and we would do this thing. And I had no idea that that was, you know, meditation work. And I was really surprised because this was, you know, 20 years ago. And, you know, a lot of this stuff is not accepted in the medical community as treatment. But there are many doctors that will allow a grudging nod towards as long as you don't get in my way and it doesn't interfere with what I'm doing, go ahead. Yeah, that's very true. I had a friend of mine's wife did that, and she kept cancer at bay for many, many years. She used to have these two uh, road workers with big shovels, shoveling all the black stuff away and throwing it down a hole so it disappeared. And uh, she was able to get rid of all this black energy within her, and the doctor set that up for her as well. I'd forgotten all about that. Thanks for reminding me. But look, it depends on what you want to do. Uh, I, When I finally agreed to having the radiotherapy... I was told I would have to have 35 different sessions of radiotherapy. I thought, oh, my God, 35. At least 20 minutes um, in there, plus the setup time and whatever. But to top that off, I had to wear this huge mask that was made for me specially, which came down over my face, down over the shoulders, and I was bolted in and had to go onto this sliding um, thing into a, a Tomo machine, which was wonderful. That's the only reason I really accepted this because they told me that it was able to set these micro settings so that it wasn't going to affect my voice and uh, wasn't going to have an impact on my um, various nodal points around there. So I had to come to terms with this because I have breathing problems at the best of times. I'm having breathing problems at the moment <laughs> with a bit of that, with a bit of um, hay fever. But I was really, this is when the, the second layer of fear came in. I thought, oh, God, how am I going to lie back here? And had this whacking rate mask shoved over my face, bolted down so that I can't move. I've got to be in there for about a half an hour. And I was told, if you move, it can set things off and, and it causes a problem. So what do I do about that? 
So I actually went and spoke to a friend of mine who appeared on my radio program at Radio Out There, and she's a hypnotherapist, and she works with trauma patients. She works with soldiers who have just come back from Afghanistan and various places and helps them get over their PTSD. And she said, come on, come up to my uh, rooms and we'll do some hypnotherapy. Now, we did hours of hypnotherapy preparing me so that I would not panic or have any kind of attacks or uh, any kind of whatever, any kind of problems when I had to lie there, be bolted in and have this. Now, that was the first thing I did. Now, hypnotherapy is not exactly way off the board these days. So, you know, the doctors weren't concerned when I told them I was having hypnotherapy. So that was the first state that I did. And that, I've got to tell you, that helped me enormously. Because after Judith, the name I talk about her in my book, Judith Richards, she's brilliant. And after Judith set me all up with this, and I went through lying on my back, she programmed my subconscious so that I had no breathing problems. At the end of the session, she said, okay, well, how, how long do you think you were under there? And I said, oh, I don't know, 10 or 15 minutes. She said, you were lying there on your back for an hour and a half, no breathing problems, no problems whatsoever. Wow, didn't that do something for my confidence? So okay. Judith prepared me in that area. And then I thought, well, I'm going to be lying under there on this on this sliding thing. It's, it's like an MRI machine without all the noise. And you slide, you lie down on this tray, and then you slide in and, and the radiotherapy does its work. And I thought, okay, well, what am I going to do? I'm lying here and my mind's going to be all over the place because I've got a pretty active mind at the best of times. And... My daughter, who's uh, got a PhD in psychology, I was talking to her about it, and she said, oh, that's simple. Just do your visualization exercises. And I thought, oh, grief. Now, this is where also the whole area had seized up my thinking. I've been teaching people visualization techniques and taking people on meditation trips for years. Do you think when it came my turn that I applied <laughs> to myself? No, because my mind clicked over once again into a fear mode and didn't allow stuff come in. So then I went off and I came up with a series of visualization techniques, which I practiced before I started the radiotherapy. And that's another story too. I practiced on a crystal bed. I'll tell you about that later if you like. And um, I was able to, every time I went in there, I would disappear off somewhere. As soon as the machine started and they said, right, Barry, we're starting now. And uh, the whirring and the things started. I would disappear off, usually to Paris. I like Paris. Do you like Paris, Sandra and Linda? Absolutely. Love it. Yeah, love it. So I would disappear off to the left bank of Paris, and uh, I had a favorite um, restaurant there for breakfast, and then we'd go somewhere. We'd go somewhere like the, uh, the Musée d'Orsay and wander through and look at all the works of Gauguin and uh, all, all the other wonderful art, post-impressionist artists over there. So that was my visualization. Every time worked like a charm, along with the music that I took in with me. So I relaxed, music was there, visualization. I tripped off all over the place, all over the world. Had a wonderful time. In fact, one particular time was quite funny. Uh, at the, I was still having breakfast in Paris in my visualization, and the session finished. And when it finishes, the, the, uh, the machine just stops, and you tray slides out and they walk in a few seconds later and start unbolting the mask and whatever. 
And I said, oh, guys, you've just disturbed my breakfast. I was having a lovely <laughs> omelette in Paris. And, look, you know, you, you've disturbed that. And they looked at me as if I was some kind of wacko. <laughs> and I explained <laughs> to them then. And then they laughed and they realized. I said, look, this is how I do it. And they said, what a, what a great idea. Yeah, but I never did get back to that omelette. Whatever works. Did you know that Dr. Oz was one of the first um, surgeons here in New York that would allow healers into his operating room? Doctor who? Dr. Oz. I don't know Dr. Oz. Oh, I'm you sorry. don't know Dr. Oz. Well, Dr. Oz is a big doctor here, um, and he was a you know he was a big heart surgeon, and now he's got a a, a television show um, on all the time. He's he's become quite famous with. Um, with his television show that's on every day talking about all different ailments and how to be healthier and healthier. So he's like a rock star here in the States, Dr. Mehmet Oz. But he, oh, look, I, ha I have seen, uh, I've seen reference to his program. I've never seen it. I don't get to watch daytime TV. or something he, happening. As I said, he did allow um, healers into his operating room, which is fantastic. And they also had up at Columbia Presbyterian in the day, he had a separate little area and it was like a bookstore and he had tapes and books that people could buy so that you had these tapes and you could actually put the, the earphones in your ear while you were being operated on, um, which were, you know, which would help the healing process. And then afterwards, there were different tapes and people that use these during the operation, before the operation, during the operation and after the operation, um, healed quicker and got out of the hospital a lot quicker than people that didn't. So, you know, he was, and that was probably 25 years ago. I had a friend that had a, an operation and she used it and she thought it was fantastic. Yeah, look, all of these are the power of the mind, aren't they? I volunteered at the end of my sessions to, uh, uh, when, when I finished with the uh, people there and they said to me, oh, thank you. For, you're one of the best patients we've ever had. I said, oh, really? Uh, because I just go in there, strip off, lie down, <laughs> go off into my own little world, have breakfast or lunch in Paris or whatever, and and out again, get dressed, off I go. And at the end of it, they said to me, oh, sometimes it takes us half an hour just to get the person prepared so we can even start the treatment. So uh, what should be a, a 25 or 30-minute treatment turns into an hour, and that's why quite often they're running so late. So I said, oh, look, I'd, I'd be happy to um, record some um some wonderful meditation tapes or whatever. I don't have to take them to Paris. You know, we can go and sit under a waterfall or out in the, in the garden somewhere. Mm -hmm. And they said, oh, no, no, no. People, people probably wouldn't have anything to do with that because it would be medically inappropriate. Oh, That's what they told me, oh. medically inappropriate. Now, what a load of, yeah, is that? Yeah. And that is like, that is just ridiculous. And if my doctor told me something like that, I'd probably have to find a new doctor because that is just. That's insane. Well, it wasn't the doctors. These no, these are the, the therapists insane. inside the radiotherapy unit yeah. there, and but they're dealing with these patients every day. Now, this is how locked in to the medical system they are, not the therapists, because they were, they were very interested in all of this, but it's the people themselves, and they are going in there with this preparation that's been given to them by the medical people. Now, I don't want to bag medical people. I know they're doing their best. But I think it's about time we started to overhaul. And what Dr. Ross was saying and various other people, um, then, yeah, get in there and help people. Oh, don't God. just leave them to it and then create all of these fears and say, okay, off you go. Bye. Good luck. We'll see you when you come out. I mean, Did that's you just have rubbish. to wait till all your 35 therapy, radiotherapies were over before that they told you that whatever, whatever, it, that it worked? 
Yeah, yeah. I had to um, have some tests, obviously, after that, uh, a few days later. And then they, they proved that it all had worked and that, uh, I mean, y y you take five years to be in full remission. And I'm almost at the end of four years now. Uh, but they, the tests that I had showed that all of the, the cancer that they had seen there in my throat had been treated. Wonderful. But yeah, that, that was only just part of it. I, I've only given you the tip of the iceberg of the preparation and the holistic stuff and what went on, which I've, I've written about in depth in The Joy of Living. But also, I uh, just want to mention that it's tough on partners on wives and husbands and, and uh, family members. And that's why my partner, Anne Morgenoff, wrote part two of The Joy of Living because she talks about it from the partner's point of view because she was there supporting me, being with me. As you're going through, you know, I ended up with really, really bad throat, sore throat. I lost taste in my uh, uh, food and, and lost interest in food, lost weight, all sorts of things. They're given all sorts of help to do this on the way. But hey, was, uh, Barry, you know what? We've got to go to commercial break. When we come sure. back from the break, we'll talk more about the caregiver side of the cancer story. We'll be back after the break. We've got lots more powered up with Sandra Beck and Linda Franklin after these messages. Close your eyes and imagine living your life without limits. Where would you go? Who would you meet? What would you do? During an Uncover Your Hidden Genius session, you will discover what's keeping you from living your life with purpose, passion, and fulfillment of your potential. You'll get a clear vision of the steps you need to take to uncover your hidden genius so that you can live a life without limits. Sessions can be done over the phone, Skype, or in person. Find out more at www.JoyceBufordEmpowers.com or by calling 903-287-0747. Did you ever notice you buy more groceries when you use a large shopping cart? The shopping cart, or trolley as it was originally called, was invented in 1937 by Sylvan Goldman, owner of two Oklahoma City grocery stores. Back then, shoppers carried their food in wicker baskets. One day, Goldman was observing his customers and realized that as soon as their baskets were full or too heavy on their arm, people stopped shopping. Goldman thought if we could somehow give customers two baskets, we could do considerably more business. What's another word for a resourceful person? A debrouillard. Goldman put wheels on some folding chairs, attached two baskets to the seat, and let the back of the chair act as a handle so the cart could be pushed with one hand. What do you call anything that can be manipulated with one hand? A thumbadoodle. It's words you never heard. I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words you never heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. We're back with Sandra Beck and Linda Franklin. Here's more Powered Up with Beck and Franklin. Hey, 
Hey, ladies, this is Sandra Beck, and we're here with Barry Eaton, and we're talking about the joy of living. And, you know, Linda, we were talking up until this point about Barry and and fear in the medical community. I really want to talk about the caregiver aspect of it because it's very, very hard. You know, when you are a daughter, when you are a wife, when you are a parent and you're you're handling some of this, it's very different than when you're with the patient. And, you know, I was only 13 when I was sick. And I think one of the hardest things that I remember was seeing how scared and upset my mom was how worried my dad was and how like both frustrated my brothers and sisters were and scared at the same time because it really does throw the whole family into a tailspin so I'm going to go over to Barry first to talk a little bit about the tailspin that ensued from your cancer diagnosis and treatment well, it was my partner, Anne, who first of all urged me to go along because I thought I had something stuck in my throat and uh, I was coughing around like a cat with a furball trying to get it up. And then when I did have the test, she, of course, uh, in, got me to get to the doctor. I had the test and found out that I did have a, a tumour. But then Anne was there with me all the time. Because we live in two cities, we, we don't live together. Um, she lives in Sydney and I live in the Northern Beaches. Uh, the Northern Rivers, I should say, of, of New South Wales. Um, she's in the northern beaches of Sydney, lots of north there. Um, we come and go a lot. But not having her with me all the time was going to be a real stretch. So she had to leave her commitments. She had some work, so she couldn't come up immediately. The treatment started. But my son, Matt, was there. He's written a chapter in the book as well. And Matt lives in Brisbane, fortunately, so he was able to be with me for the initial treatments and that. So... Having a partner, having a family, having my son there, my daughter helping me with the visualization exercises, as I said before, uh, all the rest of my family being so supportive. But having Anne then come and join me and be there day in, day out as I'm coming back and, and having the, the raw neck, like it's like a severe sunburn on the neck after a couple of weeks of, of being uh, zapped with radiotherapy. So she was there to apply all of the the uh, bandages and, and whatever that were needed, the dressings, I should say, uh, and, and cook food for me because I lost taste. When you're having that area of your throat blasted, the first things that go are your taste buds. And I couldn't eat anything really because it just tasted like lumps of gunk. Uh, I couldn't have a glass of wine because that tasted like vinegar. So I ended up eating ice cream most of the time. The dietitians told me I could eat ice cream. But Anne was there for me. But what she went through... I only really found out about that when she wrote her side of the story. And that's why I think it's great to have, have written The Joy of Living with my partner. I've written part A and she's written part B. And my son Matt came in with his bits at the end. But knowing what they go through opened my eyes as to not only what she went through, but what every other family member, whether it's a wife, a husband, uh, a brother, a sister, a parent, or whatever, what they go through is usually sort of swept aside because when you're having cancer, everything comes back to you. The whole focus goes inward. But then uh, afterwards you realize what they've done. So you said that you know she had a whole host of issues that was go that were going. What was the worst thing for her that she, that she talks about in the book? What was the worst part of this for her? Uh, 
Well, there weren't that many worst things, but she had to give up her life uh, in Sydney there. She had to give some work away. Uh, she had her, her own family and, and other commitments. She had to get somebody to come in and mind the house for her down there and do all sorts of things at short notice just to come and be with me. So that was her life was disrupted to uh, for a couple of months there at, at very short notice. I mean, normally if you plan for these things, you can you can uh, take all your contingencies into uh, into account. But she couldn't do that. But then seeing me uh, distressed her because. My neck got sore and sore and sore because of the the treatments there. So that affected her. And knowing the fact that she was there and she was trying to make food, she was trying to make sauces and gravies and things with the dietitian told her that was the best thing to do to help bring a little bit of taste. She was constantly challenged trying to get some nutrition into me. Well, because it's a very helpless feeling, you know, when you're, you know, when I look at the being on both sides of the bed, Barry and Linda, I was so helpless with my mom. She's in pain. I can't help her. Nothing tastes good. You know, no matter what I did, and I remember close towards the end, my little guy climbed into bed with her, which she normally loved, like toddler hugs. And she just kind of groaned and was like, oh, you know, everything hurts just to touch her hurts. And it's it's such a um, massive feeling of inadequacy and powerlessness when you watch someone you love suffer. That's exactly it. And that's what Anne was. Uh, she, it's frustration as well as the empathy. Now, Anne is a sensitive. She's uh, a wonderful psychic herself, a brilliant uh, numbers person. She's a neurologist of, of great talent. So she, being a sensitive, was tuning into my inner pain because I, I tried to mask it as much as possible. But when you see somebody with, with these raw neck and, and all the other associated things there you want to be able to help them in whatever way you can and this is where i feel for other people i I saw some other people at the hospital and they were obviously on their own they didn't have support they were older people and they just didn't have the backup in the early stages of their diagnosis and everything like that when they met the committee i talked about earlier and you could see loneliness all around them and i thought wow this is really tough so we do need those supporters and we need to think about them and and also appreciate what they do for us. Mm, that's for sure. That's for sure. Um, and did it, it, did it, so you went through it and she was there for you. Um, and then I guess she went back to her life and you went, you continued on like you had before. Did it change the relationship at all? No, look, it did. It changed the relationship because it brought us closer together. I mean, we had been living together for for many years until I moved north uh, for various reasons. And um, the fact that we were commuting backwards and forwards to see each other, that, that sort of obviously puts a bit of a strain on the relationship. But it brought us back very, very close together once again, uh, that we were sharing the same roof. We were carer and patient, but also... Uh, in a love relationship that meant everything to both of us. And I found out this is some of the big changes that when you look back, and I wrote about this in the book, what you find out afterwards, it it made me realize how much I loved Anne and also how much I needed her in my life and also my own family. the, The problem is in our business, radio, television, all these sort of things, you tend to go off and, and do a lot of work Work becomes so paramount. And family 
can be pushed into the background. And I realized that I'd done that. And this was a wake-up call for me. So it was not only a wake-up call with Anne, but it was a wake-up call for me me and the rest of my family. And, and it, relations have improved enormously since then. Uh, I'd, I'd had a few um, distance uh, problems, shall we say, uh, with, with some of the members of my family because of divorce and whatever. And that has all been resolved, which has been fantastic. So there are many benefits that can, can come out of things like cancer. Well, I think, yeah, it's definitely the great equalizer. It strikes anyone old, young, fat, thin, rich, poor, and it really does put into perspective a lot of times these stupid fights that families have. I mean, they're just stupid. There's no way else to put it. They they go on for so long, and sometimes families don't even realize that what they're fighting about is long gone, but yet they hold on to it out of some sort of self-righteousness. And that's one thing where cancer can be a great equalizer. This is so true. This is so true. It can bring families close together. It can split families up. But once again, every case is unique. And I was just so fortunate that I was able to go through this whole experience and realize why I had it and realize that once I took responsibility for the whole thing and decided, I've only, as I said, touched on some of the holistic things that I did. Uh, it's a, there's a whole different story in there, which I've talked about in the book, The Joy of Living. But having that whole experience did change my life and it'll change everybody's life. Unfortunately, some people's lives are so changed that they end up passing over. But then again, that's also part of life, isn't it? It is. It is part of life. And it's one of those things where there's there's so many different um, layers to when someone gets sick, um, both from the patient side and from the caregiver and family side. What did Anne find was the most helpful to her? Do you do you know uh, from her time with you and your treatment? That's a good question. I'd have to think about that. Well, I couldn't answer that straight off the top of my head. Um, and I think you'd really have to ask her that question. Yeah, that I think it's a really good question because... Go ahead. No, 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 no. I, I think it was a brilliant question. And I'd, I'd have to go back and have a talk to her about that one. Well, we'll just have to have you back again so we can ask you that question. <laughs> I can tell you from my standpoint, it was meditation and prayer to yeah. be able to put myself in a position like I, you know, now I have the words. I didn't have the words then, but I would step back and sit in my soul like I would step back and sit in my soul when I would go in to work with, talk to, handle the things with my mom so that my ego was taken out. My fear was taken out. That was really hard for me to to do and I found that a little five minute meditation shutting my eyes and prayer you know whatever you believe in however you want to pray but prayer helped me a little bit to ask for strength and to ask for peace so that I could do what I needed to do and um, giving myself periodic time outs so that I could regroup Um, that was the one thing that I think helped me the most and prevented the burnout yeah, yeah, that's very true. As I said before, putting it out, whether you do it through meditation, prayer, whatever. As I said, you don't ask, you don't get. That's right. Well, we've been here today visiting with Barry Eaton on behalf of Linda Franklin and myself. I want to thank you, Barry, for being our guest today. Do you know when the book will be released in the States? 
Look, I think the uh, the paperback version of it uh, is going to be the hard uh, copy is going to be out in around about July. Look, it's available now. It's on Amazon, uh, which you can pick up as a Kindle. It's available through uh, an online distributor called Booktopia and also through eBay. eBay are selling it, would you believe, um, and advertising it as well, which is rather nice, I found out this week. So it is available worldwide right now, but it will be released in bookstores and that in the States um, probably July or, or shortly after that. All right. We'll take a look for it. The Joy of Living by Barry Eaton. We'll be back again next week. We're so glad you joined us for Powered Up with Beck and Franklin. Sandra Beck, Los Angeles-based single mother and technology company owner, knows what it's like to be fit, funny, and fantastic in your 40s. Linda Franklin, a New Yorker with a successful marriage and pre-